Good morning, everyone. Uh, to those of you that are here and watching online, we're going to be spending our time in Matthew, um, finishing off chapter 12, um, as we've gone through it, this holiday series. But uh, as you uh, would have read, or would have heard, read out in the passage, um, we'll be making reference to uh, Jonah and all the incredible things that happened there uh, as well. So why don't I uh, lead us in prayer as we come to the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, and that as rain does not return empty, so neither may your word return empty in us, but that it would accomplish the purpose for which it is given. Amen. Well, being in my uh, early 30s puts me in the age demographic of Generation Y, or the Millennials. Now, millennials are sometimes cast or portrayed um, in the media and elsewhere as something of a, uh, a low-commitment generation, we call it that. Uh, like a reed swaying in the wind. We can't decide what we want. We'll never be satisfied. We're jumping from here to there. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying sometimes uh, our generation is portrayed in this way. Um, one area in which we perhaps see this is uh, in our attitude to jobs. Uh, my father-in-law, who is... Uh, not in Gen Y, um, he has amazingly, I think, worked at the same company his, uh, uh, since he entered the workforce. So he, was, he interned there at Westpac when he was 18, uh, and since then, for the last 40 years or so, uh, he's been working there. And I'd say that is, that is commitment and that is loyalty. Um, they rewarded him with a watch. There you go. Uh, um, 40 years. Uh, you get a watch. Uh, okay. And... Um, but millennials tend to uh, have something of a reputation for, uh, for job hopping. Uh, Gallup, uh, a polling company, did a poll um, and they, about half of millennials were willing to say that they would be at their job or the company a year from, a year from now. Uh, millennials were far more likely to act upon new job opportunities, uh, perhaps reflecting a more mercenary mindset. Now, all of this could be, uh, perhaps, uh, due to the dynamic and kind of changing nature of the 21st Australian economy. Uh, maybe it's because businesses, you know, struggle to keep their workers uh, engaged and supported. Maybe it's their fault. Or maybe it's just, you know, Gen Y can't make up their minds. I'm not going to comment on it. I'll let you decide uh, what you think on that. Uh, it's not only kind of in the economic area, though. Uh, millennials are less likely uh, to get married uh, than the previous, genera previous generations. Um, and to get married later as well, while at the same time um, having a lower rate of divorce than older generations. So perhaps when they eventually do find what they want, they can commit. Now, generational trends are, are complex. Um, uh, and as we look at Matthew 12, I wonder if you maybe noticed as we were going through that passage, the idea of the kind of the generation or a generation that is wicked and unbelieving, uh, that is kind of low commitment, is kind of the thread that carries through in what Jesus, uh, and when Jesus speaks. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about um, millennials when he refers to this generation. No, he's referring to kind of the, the, uh, the living nation of Judeans at the time and how they were responding to him, or in this case, not responding as they should. Uh, we've been going through Matthew 12 and we've had these encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes who kind of represent the generation, right? Um, and 
there's been this encounters where they've been challenging Jesus. They've been challenging whether he's good. They've been accusing him of whether, in fact, he is uh, driven or using the power of Satan and demons. And here we see they are ultimately evading and are trying to avoid committing to him. They're deferring to him. They're deferring him, I think. And so here in Matthew 12, Jesus addresses the question of commitment. And so for us, uh, reading, reading on, reading here, I think the question is, how can we make sure that we are not like those in this generation that Jesus speaks of? And where can we find the encouragement um, to be one of Jesus's family members, uh, as we see at the end? So that's what we want to be thinking as we come to this passage. You can follow along in the outline uh, that you've got printed. Uh, the first point of which is the danger of deferring commitment to Jesus. See, as I've said, we pick up at the end of this engagement between Jesus and the Pharisees. And you might remember from last week that they had accused Jesus of siding with Satan and using demonic power to cast out demons. Now, Jesus basically demolishes that whole accusation and takes them to task for this, saying it's both A, illogical, and B, you know, blasphemous to try and say this about the work of God. And so that happens, and then the Pharisees seem to come back with this almost like a concessionary request. Like, okay, then, you know, you've said all this. Um, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. How can you kind of prove it of who you are? And on the surface, this might seem reasonable, right? And extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And we know in the scriptures, it's not inherently uh, evil to necessarily ask for a sign. Uh, Gideon asks God for a sign um, with our condemnation in, in Judges 6. Uh, God even offers a sign to Hezekiah in Isaiah. Um, it was often expected for a prophet to have some kind of sign to clarify who they were. But, but, the Pharisees and the scribes here were not, they were asking for a sign in bad faith. And it was actually a sign of their bad faith, if you want to put it that way. Uh, because we, maybe if we grant for one second um, that they had somehow just forgotten all the abundance of miracles that Jesus had already done and all the teaching that had already done, we've got to remember that this uh, conversation is taking place in light of an exorcism that Jesus has. He's driven out a demon. And in, back in verse 28, Jesus says, If I am driving out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's hard to think, I think, of a much clearer sign um, of doing God's work than driving out a demon. You know, you know, you're directly opposing Satan's interest. So therefore, Jesus must be from, from God. And if he's from God, he must be speaking the truth. And so they've seen all this, and yet they don't believe it. And it really seems like they're just trying to evade him. They're trying to get him to act on their terms. Uh, and we see that in, in this day and age, I think. Um, you know, people will say, well, if only God would appear to me, right, personally, then I'll follow him. If only God would grant me a miracle that I, would, that I could see, then I would believe. If only God would kind of speak to me personally or give me some irrefutable evidence, then I, of course, I will follow him. Um, people can often set kind of terms and conditions for God. And that might seem reasonable at first, you know, if God wants us to follow him. But there are three things I think we should note. Firstly, God um, actually doesn't need us. Um, that might be a blow to our self-esteem. Um, but we actually are not entitled to anything. He gives us a lot, but we're not entitled to anything from him. We actually need him. Secondly, 
A person can see a sign and they can see miracles of all sorts. I mean, that's testified again and again in the Bible and yet still ignore God and still reject Christ. And finally, I think God has spoken. I think he's spoken loudly uh, in nature. Uh, Our existence is not just a happy accident. Um, I think it has a real final and causal explanation in God. And yet even more importantly, I think God has spoken through his word through the recordings of his works and acts in history. And so to demand kind of terms and conditions to, um, to God is kind of to constitute an evasion. Uh, they don't really want to uh, trust in Jesus. They want to kind of get out of having to acknowledge him. And so Jesus calls them out here, doesn't he? Uh, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Uh, it's the old, kind of the old label used in the Old Testament of how Israel acted when they were not being faithful to God. Uh, that's why, you know, it's using the term adulterous, right? They're being unfaithful to God as a spouse is unfaithful to their partner. And how are they being unfaithful to God here? Well, if Jesus is the one that God has sent um, and they're not accepting him, well, then they're actually uh, rejecting God as well. And so they get a sign, don't they? And what's the sign? The sign of Jonah. Now, commentators make many things of this. I think verse 40 is key, and I think it is actually, the point is it's of Jesus' experience of death. Um, The cross is, in fact, the sign. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, which was kind of the moment when um, Jonah kind of turned around and confirmed that God would still have him be his prophet, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is referring to his, his death. Paul makes a kind of a similar point in, in 1 Corinthians, where he says, for the Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified. Which is to say that the cross is both a sign of, um, it's a sign to them of their, of their condemnation, because they're actually going to enact this sign, they're going to put, have Jesus put to death, Right? While at the same time, it's also a confirm- God's confirmation. The cross is God's stamp that Jesus really is who he said he is. He is the king who has come to save. Um, Jesus' death is, is a stumbling block to those who don't believe, but to us who do, we see it's ultimately his victory, don't we? We see it is the way that he atones for sin, that he brings life. It's the crown, uh, sorry, it's the jewel in, in the crown of God's uh, saving plan. And so Jesus says this, and then he uses, I think, kind of to maybe shock and embarrass them a little bit bit more, uh, he uses two examples of Gentiles who put them to shame by the fact they've heard a snippet of God's word and yet have a profound response. Uh, He kind of condemns them by comparison. Because in verse 41, he speaks of the Ninevites. Uh, You may know, as we had read out, that was the ancient Assyrian capital. That was who Jonah was sent to. and all Jonah did was go in and preach like a pretty half-hearted sermon. It was about eight words long. And yet you have the most incredible dramatic act of repentance in this city. You have them even, you know, dressing up their, their cows in sackcloths just to show, uh, you know, to try and appeal to God not to destroy them. It's an incre- it is truly an incredible response. And then you have, you know, you've got Jesus here who is a greater, far greater preacher than Jonah, right? And yet the Pharisees... Um, and the people aren't responding as they should. On the other hand, you kind of have the more positive side, right? The Queen of Sheba, who's come from the ends of the earth just by the reputation of Solomon to hear him and to hear him speak. Um, 
And yet the Pharisees here, they have the very wisdom of God incarnate before them. And they don't want to hear him. They want to ignore him. I think um, the example of, of, of Nineveh and of, um, the Queen of Sheba actually raises a, a question for us and how we treat God's word because their responses are quite profound, aren't they? Even only having a small kind of snippet of God's word. And we ourselves, we have God's full testimony before us in the scriptures. So maybe we can ask ourselves a question of how do we respond when we read the word? Is our response more like that of the Pharisees at times, perhaps to ignore certain parts or we just go for the bits that we like? Or do we seek to perhaps to see it as God's word, right? God's word that has been written, written for us. Either way, uh, there is no excuse to defer Jesus, who is the greater prophet and king. The point is, he's saying, you guys are asking me for a sign, and yet you have seen all of this. And the sting here is that, um, you know, the, the Jewish leaders who would have thought themselves righteous before God are actually going to be condemned, and they're going to be condemned by the Gentiles, who they would have, in their mind, condemned. They had a much better response than they did. And so, as we who have heard... Um, we've got the scriptures before us and we have an even better picture than the Pharisees in a, in a way. We've got the full scriptures before us. Um, we need to remember um, that we can't defer responding to Jesus. We can't evade it because at the end of the day, we all have a, a day before us marked out in which we will die and one day we will face God. We will stand before his throne and there will be no evasion at that point. And so we cannot... Um, Obey Jesus, we cannot defer him. Secondly, we come to the hazard of a half-hearted commitment. It seems like a bit of a strange turn in this passage. Jesus starts telling a story from the perspective of a demon. Um, I remember the very first time I read this and I thought, what on earth is going on here? Uh, what is he talking about? Um, and it used to trouble me, like, is Jesus talking about demons or, you know, demonology? It's important to see this, this parable, uh, sorry, to see that this is actually a parable. It's in the context of this discussion Right? It's not really about the mechanics of demonology or exorcism or anything of this kind of sort. Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees about um, you know, demons and whether he's in league with them. And so he kind of uses this parable to illustrate the spiritual danger the Pharisees are in. And so what is the point of this parable? Well, I'll go through it in, in a second. But really it's to say, to experience the blessing of God without the required response brings a short-term blessing, sorry, a short-term benefit, but ultimately, it leads to disaster. So you have this restless spirit, don't you? Going out from the person for whatever reason, and it goes on its restless way, and it's dissatisfied, and then it returns to find the person who, which it previously possessed, who's um, you know, done nothing to stop it. They haven't put like a demon lock or whatever you would have um, on, your ha on your house to stop the demon. Um, and so it goes and, you know, goes and gets its mates, and it returns. It finds it all, all looking very proper. So it's like, fine, we'll go back. Go back in. And the person, poor person, is left in a worse position than when they had first began. The key to the parable is the conclusion. Verse 45. The last state of this person becomes worse than the first. So it will be with this generation as well. The point of the parable is this. That the temporary benefit that was experienced did not lead to the required response. Um, if you imagine... Um, uh, a gambler in crippling debt um, who has just had a stroke of fortune, right? Or providence, we might say. 
and they've won, they actually won the jackpot. It does happen. They experience suddenly a massive windfall. Now they can pay off their debts. They can fix up their life. Um, and I want to say that, you know, this is just an, you know, just an imaginary thing, but I know of friends who've had friend, you know, family members who are addicted to gambling who've had this experience. They've won, and yet it doesn't resolve their problems. Their addiction continues, and they go back to gambling, and they lose even more, and they find themselves in an even worse position. It actually, in, in some sense, encourages them um, to keep on, on going. The ultimate root cause of the problem has not been fixed. And Jesus is saying, don't... Well, he's warning them that this could happen to you as people. Um, they've experienced great blessing, haven't they? What could be better than having you know, the Son of God doing miracles before you? They've seen the wonders of people being healed, demon-possessed, people being you know, restored, having the demons cast out. And yet, if there isn't a response... Um, they're actually missing out on what Jesus has ultimately come to do. We had that song before, didn't we, of the way, the truth, and the life. And that is really the ultimate thing, the necessary thing that needs to happen. We need to see Jesus in that way. Otherwise, we'll be in that same situation uh, where we experience the good things, and yet really um, there's only been a kind of a sweeping and a decorating. And so that the Pharisees, that they, they were in this, in this situation, weren't they? Uh, they had the law of God, they liked the law, but really they wanted the law on their own terms and they wanted the law to be what justified them. Um, so they kind of clean themselves up and say, actually, Jesus, we're all right, we have the law. And um, this can go for us in a way, if we only see Christianity as a kind of a list of moral rules, um, a way to improve ourselves, it's really like sweeping down, you know, sweeping the surface, right? You sweep away mold on your wall with a damp cloth, okay, it goes away for a little bit, right? But then it comes back worse than ever because you haven't addressed the root cause. And the transformation and the significance of the response that Jesus has called for people, that is repentance and belief, it hasn't happened. And if that does not happen, the end result will be far worse. I think um, I was listening to... Um, uh, a guy called Jordan Peterson, um, his video popped up on, on my Facebook and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll watch what he has to say because it was titled, he's not a Christian, it was titled A Message to Churches, right? And so I was listening to it um, and he was talking about having a psychological reading to religion and to scripture. And he had things to say about Western culture and um, young men, he seems to appeal particularly to young men. And he was talking about building something good, right? Of encouraging young men, in, the church is encouraging young men to build something good, to have a purpose, to contribute to society. The church must do this. And as I was listening, I'm like, sure, maybe, maybe there's some practical wisdom here. But ultimately, what he was speaking of was a Christless Christianity. It didn't have the gospel in it. It was really all just about improving the surface, uh, without pursuing what is truly needed. And as I've said, that is repentance and faith in Christ. Um, because if the standing of our relationship with God doesn't change, then we are in trouble. Uh, to give a, another example, perhaps closer to home for us, um, there are perhaps many things that you enjoy about being a part of the church. You might really enjoy being in church and coming here uh, every Sunday, and I, I hope you do. You might love the joy of community, of getting to socialise and to know other people. You might love hearing Bible talks, at least when Stephen gives them. Um, 
<laughs> you might enjoy the, the rhythm and the routine that being here every Sunday gives. You might love the informal and informal things that happen during the week. You might love the way that you get to show kindness to other members and other members show kindness to you. And there's so many things that you just love about the experience of your church life that are a blessing. And you can experience all of this and love all of this and not be a disciple of Jesus. And to miss that is to miss everything. And what a tragedy that would be to be so close, to be at the church where you're hearing the word of God, where you're enjoying all the elements of Christian community and to miss the very thing at its heart, to miss the God of who all these other blessings speak to. And so we cannot just have, I guess, as I said, a half-hearted response to Jesus. Uh, It actually means we need to turn to him and If you are wondering, perhaps, if you have not done that at this point, may I urge you um, to do so? Or at least to listen um, to what we have, what what comes next. Uh, Because you have the wonder of wholehearted commitment to Jesus at the end. And you have this contrast kind of to the lacking uh, and entitled responses of this generation, right? When Jesus has his disciples with him, Verse 46, he was talking to a crowd. His mother and brothers stood outside. They were waiting to speak, for him, speak to him. And someone told him, uh, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Now, we don't know um, the intention of Jesus' family. We don't know whether this was like just a nice request or whether this was a demand. Um, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter either way. Jesus is going to use this to make a point. Um, because while he is a good son... While he does fulfill his obligation to his parents and family, there are things that they need to know. And so he replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Uh, For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, For many in this this world, in this life, um, the old saying is sacrosanct, that blood is thicker than water, that family is everything. And yet Jesus kind of turns this uh, whole thing on its head. Um, You can't just assume that you're in the family without the commitment of discipleship. And Jesus needs his family to know that. He needs them to know that they need to follow him as well. And it's really important, as I've said, uh, the wholehearted commitment. Uh, It surprises me still um, how many Australians um, tick the box Christian um, in in the census. In the most recent census, there were approximately 2,500 people in the 2777 postcode, so that's Springwood, Windmill and Valley Heights, that ticks the Anglican box, right? Um, I think we're a medium to larger sized church, but we do not have that many people. And so there are some, maybe some good things that people have positive associations with Christianity that they're willing to tick that box. And yet, it's not, it's not enough. And the same goes for growing up in a Christian family. Uh, it's a blessing, a huge blessing to, be, to grow up in a Christian family. And yet, you are not necessarily a Christian until you have that, you, you know, you make that your own. And so Jesus' true family are those who, through discipleship alone, trust in him. And as I've said, it's important his family understood it, and it's important that the crowd understands it too. Um, what is it to do the will of the Father? Well, it's to acknowledge his son. It's to trust him and to obey him and to follow him. That's the very thing um, 
the Pharisees and the, those Jews who didn't believe. That's what they weren't doing. And it's important for us to know this as well. Uh, because we might be imperfect in our faith, and yet Jesus asks us to respond to him, to seek and put our trust in him. And um, the wonderful thing is, in fact, that he acknowledges us. Um, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, um, there is this wonderful verse, which I love, and I'll read it out. It says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I would like to think that I would do anything for my family. I would like to think that, um, and anything that good that is. But so often I, I do, you know, I'm, I'm flawed and sinful and I, and I fail them. But Jesus and his commitment to his family, to those who trust in him, is perfect. He loves them and he loves them with a perfect and everlasting love. In fact, that's why he came. He came to love them, to give himself for them. He's raised to now intercede for us. He deals with us patiently as his brothers and sisters. And by his strength and by his power, he is leading us to eternity. His commitment to those who trust in him, to his brothers and sisters, is unbreaking. And that is a wonderful thing. I hope you know the wonder of that. Um, I was talking with someone last week about the persecuted church and about how for many people calling Jesus, um, you know, uh, and trusting in him and responding in repentance and faith is actually going to lead to a rejection from their own earthly family. And they are willing to do that because they realise there is something better in him. So to conclude, I think we both have a warning and an encouragement. Let us take heed of what Jesus warns here about not being like the generation who didn't listen, that sought to put him off, to evade him, or to seek some other path to blessing. And let us also, with, with joy, cling to that, that wonderful hope that we have in trusting in him, that he has made us his family. And let that lead us, I hope, to a desire to, to hear from his word, and when we hear his word, to respond to it, and to seek to obey him and live for him. So I'm going to pray that God would do that in us, in each one of us. Um, so let me do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son for us and for our salvation. Um, we praise you that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And he does everything that we need to rescue us from sin and death and darkness, to bring us into his kingdom, even though we are flawed, even though uh, we do not deserve it. We pray that even in light of your great love for us, that you would help us not to be those who ignore you or put you off or find some excuse not to listen. Please help us to see um, the joy it is to follow you and to know you um, as, our, as our Lord and our Saviour um, and the joy it is to seek to follow you and that in you uh, is everlasting joy and life. And we pray that uh, as we go out, um, that would be our hope and our goal as we uh, live this week and not only this week. 
um, until we meet you again in glory. Amen.